This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Journalism, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State, and I'm joined today by Will Mari, who is an assistant professor of media history and media law at the Manship School of Mass Communication at Louisiana State University. His latest book and the subject of our conversation today is The American Newsroom, A History, 1920 to 1960 which was published in 2021 by the University of Missouri Press. Will, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. So uh, really excited to to dive into this this book with you. Uh, I share some of the the fondness you express for newsrooms in, yeah. in the book, having worked in some myself, and I imagine many of the folks listening to this will, will share that fondness too. Uh, why don't you just start us off by telling us uh, how you became interested in, in studying newsrooms? Sure. Uh, I began looking at newsrooms really as an extension of looking at, of all things, textbooks about journalists, because they would describe these crazy places you would wind up working in, and they would try to scare the students into into being ready. Uh, maybe my listeners uh, and my interviewer can empathize with the desire to try to tell students, hey, like, this is fun, but out there, it's a lot more scary. And so I understood the motivations, but I always thought these descriptions were kind of unrealistic, and it can't be that bad. I mean, how crazy could it have been? But then I started reading, mem- started reading memoirs for another project about life in newsrooms, and it was that crazy. And so I found myself really interested in this space that had become so legendary, maybe occasionally blown out of proportion, but definitely held in a very high regard and a very uh, fond uh, regard by a lot of news workers. And so I began working on this with encouragement from my advisor, Richard Kilbowitz. And Richard had had told me to do a focus study, and I, I originally wanted to do a whole history of all of the American newsroom's entire existence. We'll get to that probably in a, in a, in a bit. But that's how it began, was looking at other texts that pointed to the existence of this crazy place. Yeah. And, and so from that, how did you settle on and kind of narrow down to this period between 1920 and, and 1960? Sure. So uh, when uh, people like Gans and Tuchman and other really awesome newsroom ethnographers did the work in the 1970s, they hinted at a history that they had found You know, when they, when they came to the newsroom in the, in, the, in, the, in the time period that was really during the middle of the Cold War. And there's been great work by people like Ted Curtis Smythe and others. Um, but there's a big chunk of time that's kind of presumed to be stable and, you know, it was, was a golden age of journalism. And you know, we just presume that it was more or less the same from about World War One through about the end of the Cold War, when that's, of course, not true, uh, as I argue in my book. Um, but that's why that, that chunk of time became uh, interesting to me was that presumed static uh, uh unchangingness, which I was curious about, because I always get suspicious when someone says nothing happened. Uh, and so I'm, I'm like, well, I think something did happen, probably, because they, the people who lived in that time told me it did happen. So I want to see what they were talking about. Yeah. And, and um, talk a little bit about how you're, you're kind of sourcing for this. I mean, how did you try to get that sense of, of what it was actually like during yeah. that, that period of time? So those textbooks were helpful as a starting place. 
but they're written for for students, you know, by newsroom veterans, and they were often, as I mentioned, a bit exaggerated. Uh, still really helpful, and the memoirs are also awesome, uh, and they are best when they're uh, as as you probably also know, when they're uh, uh, not too filtered. And so the self-published ones were especially awesome or the little presses that didn't do a lot of editing. Uh, so I really valued the memoirs, but really trade publications. So editor and publisher and Quill for the Society of Professional Journalists and then the Guild Reporter for the uh, American Newspaper Guild, the ANG. Uh, these became my core sources. And I also did a short jaunt over to the National Archives too at College Park and looked up some material in World War II and the National uh, Labor Relations Board uh, during that time period. So those are my main sources. I also had a little bit of oral history. I didn't do as much as I, I should have or could have. Um, and I also looked at a lot of ephemera. So uh, notebooks when I could find those things, uh, newsroom objects and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I also had a chance to, to do a lot of reading of previous histories of the newsroom. And some of them are pretty old, like A.M. Lee's uh, News in America, I think it's called. I might be getting the title wrong, but other books that did this before. Um, so a lot of older secondary air quotes literature also became kind of primary material for this project. Yeah, and it, you know, I, I know one of the sort of big big points you make is you know who sort of was and was not allowed or you know right. per- permitted to to exist or to to thrive in these spaces. And so I think it's worth mentioning here that you are talking about. You know, you know, largely white legacy newsrooms mm-hmm. here, not not the black press, not any any other types of of newsrooms that that also existed at that time. Yeah, no, I I found, and it shouldn't be shocking, but you know, I'm a white man with some big blinders on myself with, and I each have a big beard too, so I'm like stereotypical middle middle American, uh, came out of a uh, military family, very uh, unaware of other people's struggles and challenges, kind of person. Uh, and even though I had some exposure to that because of my background in the military, you know, in the intellectual world, you, you, you begin to think of these spaces as maybe just the way they were. But actually, they're very actively exclusionary and blocked the entry of, of black uh, reporters and editors for years and women. And only until the end of the time period that I look at do they become more uh, inclusionary. And it helps that World War II happens and labor shortages are a thing. And the union really pushes for this, which we'll get to probably in a bit. But the the newsroom was a racist place. It was a place of exclusion. And that's part of, the, I think, the counterbalancing to the fondness and the, and the, and the, and the um, nostalgia is remembering these, these are white institutions, primarily white institutions, sometimes maybe not as actively racist as others, uh, but definitely not welcoming if you were a person of color, not until the end of the time period when you have some some pioneers breaking the barriers, you know, and feeling really lonely in the process. I mean, uh, Jinx Broussard talks about this, and so is Cheryl Kennedy Heidel, and they're a really awesome research. Uh, but uh, I, I want that to be one of the main takeaways, you know, as a way to kind of, again, mix the the fun stuff with the bad stuff, because there's always ugly stuff mixed in with the history of the newsroom, like any other American institution during this time period. Right. And, and, and talk more about sort of the, the role that, that women played. I know you mm-hmm. sort of get into like the, the women's pages and the, you know, society sections. How did that sort of evolve over the, the, the course of this time that you studied? Yeah. So it was a pretty bro place. I realized after I chose all the images and got permissions that these are all dudes uh, for the most part. Uh, and so uh, I thought about changing that, but it also reflects the reality. It was a pretty masculine, macho place. Really, college education begins to change that with co-ed journalism programs. You know, that's 
normal now, but for a while it was pretty radical and they needed the students. So that's why they're so open to it. Sort of like voting for women in the Western parts of the United States. Of course, you're a human being. You can breathe in a mirror. You can vote. Uh, but that didn't trickle down to the newsrooms very quickly. Uh, it took a long time. But World War II really pushed the envelope there because all the guys were gone of a certain age. And after that war, unlike the first World War, women said, no, we're going to stick around now. Thank you very much. And we're going to stay in the tough beats that are, in air quotes, just for the guys, um, like crime, for example, or politics. And they really made their mark. And so that became a turning point. And I was just really enthralled by that story and the fact that many of them married news guys. And that was one way to keep your job, I guess, is become someone's boss. And so you have some really fun stories of women editors and male reporters uh, and that kind of thing, which is very unusual at that time to have married couples working as equals in the same space. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the kind of scary textbook descriptions of, <laughs> of these places, but I mean, you also talk a lot about sort of the, the hierarchies and you know, bordering on tyrannical in, in some cases. Sure. So is, is that where that scary description comes from or, you know, what there's yeah. also, I think, a sort of a, a paradox in that you also say that, you know, newsrooms are not necessarily democratic, though they've come to be known as like the bastions of democracy or they're responsible. There's part of our democracy, but they themselves were not very democratic, at least during this this time period that you're focusing on. That's right. At first, there was a very autocratic leadership style. You can call it that. Um, I think when these writers were recollecting their memories. They're thinking about newsrooms in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, but with labor shortages and the union, it became a lot harder to fire, fire people. You had to really justify that or pay people's uh, expenses when you fire them suddenly. And so you gradually have a change to a more collaborative style. And also a lot of these people, both men and women, have been in World War II and have been problem-solving, fighting the Nazis. You know, And so they became invested in having a say in their jobs. And so the news conference really comes out of this time period too. And there's gradually a more democratic perspective on what the newsroom should be in terms of how you should divvy up work. Um, but yeah, for a long time, you know, for the, I would say the first part of the history of the, the book covers, at least leadership was very top down and, and pretty brutal. Sometimes salaries helped change that and other economic forces helped change that, but really the union pushed back against that. And that was one of the reasons they even began to have one was because they really couldn't stand their, their bosses in some cases. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk more about unions. I mean, it, it the, the the sort of impression I got was that it it seems crazy now to think that you know you could just have the news exist in like a traditional nine to five kind of you know mm-hmm. bubble or you know how that that yeah. sort of how it was was structured. But that's I I think one of the the, the things unions helped push for right was the mm-hmm. more kind of standard workday. As at the same time, we were seeing a lot of other industries also adopt this Monday to Friday nine to five kind of structure mm-hmm. for white collar workers. Yeah, or even just having one day off. So one of the big things they they advocated for was to not not just have unpaid leave where you would just get off the next day after you worked twenty four hours. You know, you would have yeah, you had regular hours if you were a copy editor. You might still work crazy hours if you're a reporter, but you were paid fairly, you know, and what they call a living wage uh, capacity. And then you had, you know, he had uh, a weekend day off at least one day and maybe even two, you know, that, that'd be nice. Uh, and so that that became a really radical change. They were worried about what these people would do with their downtime. Uh, the workers weren't worried about that at all. They would take care of their families. They would have, they would have families, you know, they would play baseball or whatever, and they would have, you know, a full, well-rounded, well-rounded life. But that was a cultural shift to a more white-collar existence that happened over time. And it really changed the character of the newsroom. So it becomes, I think, a better place to work. I don't know if I would have survived, even as a historian who knows some of this stuff, in a newsroom in the 1920s. 
But I think by the 1950s, it became, especially if you were a white person, actually a pretty pleasant place to work and gradually a more welcome place for BIPOC people and for women, um, thanks to those hard-won uh, battles over things like equal pay and equal time off and that kind of thing. Yeah, and you you spend um, the bulk of the book kind of going through the different newsroom roles, uh, some mm-hmm. of which are, are are familiar to us today. But I think this really kind of drives home this this like this uh, hierarchical point, yeah. but also just about how as the industry became more professionalized, you started to see fewer people who were not college educated and, you know, some of those types of, of changes as well. So let's, let's start with, with roles that might not be as familiar Mm -hmm. to people who are thinking about newsrooms in, in the more modern context. I know you write about copy boys and copy Mm -hmm. girls and, and rewrite men. Um, You know, tell us about what, what role they served. Sure. That's a great question. It speaks to the the human labor of making information uh, get processed because it was, you know, a messy process. Copy boys and girls were kind of like interns, but treated less good. Uh, internships became a thing uh, after World War II when other industries like public relations did those kinds of experiences and journalism had to compete with, you know, better paid and less stressful occupations for good talent. Um, and there's a connection between J schools internships that I want to explore in another project, hopefully, because that's, that's, that's pretty cool um, to think about. But the, the process by which you would get information from an event to the paper, you know, there's a lot of layers, of course, and a lot of people processing that information. So rewrite people would get the stories from the street and there'd be additions, you know, often every hour. So sort of like when you up, when you, go up to your favorite local news site or your national news site and hit, hit refresh, you know, you get about the same volume of news that you would get in a paper at that time. They began to, to see some of that breaking news territory, the radio and TV over time. Um, but processing the the data, you know, it took a lot of human beings to, to compile it and edit it. And then over time, some jobs become combined and some jobs get replaced by machines, but other jobs get made as well. It's not exactly a, a one-to-one replacement, um, but Toward the end of my time period, you begin to see more of an early kind of graphic designer and people interested in layout and that kind of thing. And the early computerization of the newsroom is really where I leave off and where I have another book about about that. Um, but labor and jobs, you know, this is a very, a very uh, intense process. And so if you walked into a typical newsroom, you probably would see a lot of people during certain parts of the day and you, you would have a trouble tracking down who they were, what they were doing at some point because they were so big and so industrialized, these spaces. Um, but in the middle of the day, sometimes there'd be no one there except for the copy editors. And so it was a very odd place to work. And people loved it because you had so much freedom to go and come as you pleased. And I, I think it attracted a certain kind of individual who was highly intelligent, maybe partially college educated, um, but not always. Um, and some people were just trained on the job uh, for a long time. But yeah, you're right. Over time, you know, college becomes a big part of this. And J schools try to teach people these skills before they show up. And there's always the old chestnut of we don't train them well enough. And I work in a, in a, in a journalism program, so I know this. Uh, or they go to the real world and, you know, the students uh, aren't treated like they should be, you know, by the employers who don't understand younger people today and what they want. So it's a lot of innovation happening. They're not doing TikToks, but they are doing other things that are also really important innovations like reporting live from the scene of an accident, you know, back to a newsroom with a walkie talkie basically and doing that kind of mobile journalism. So there's, there's all kinds of really interesting places to expand. It would have been exciting to have been in uh, a newsroom, especially after World War II um, with those new jobs being made. Um, and some of them were very sacred and off limits. So I don't talk about mechanical workers very much because that's a whole nother book. Um, 
but to go into their chapel, as they called it, you know, it was a special permission uh, type of situation. You couldn't just wander back there. And many stories of copy boys and girls getting lost and then being thrown out of the back of the of the newspaper building because they're not supposed to be back there in the secret mechanical parts of the newspaper. Yeah. And, and, you know, thinking about that kind of newsroom culture, you talking about, you know, students going in today. I mean, there's also this, it's just this, not only is it where the, the work happens, but it's also where like the professional norms are, mm-hmm. are reinforced. And I know that's not unique to, to journalism per se, but it seems like it is particularly salient here because there's, you know, all these editors and it is on this, you said, very kind of hierarchical. So talk about how those, those professional, the, the industry's standards sort of were, were passed down over hmm. this time or perhaps how they, they evolved. Yeah. So you would learn, you would learn theoretical ethics in J school uh, or maybe in college or maybe before you show up in another job, but you, you would learn kind of the actual rules of the road when you got there. So you would trade work sometimes in these combinations and, and, and share labor. If you were out at a news station or bureau away from the main newsroom, you would sometimes also learn to pad your expense accounts. There's a really good, uh, couple of stories, at least in my book, where people were encouraged to add more things to their expenses because they don't want to look bad compared to their peers. Um, and we found out that they're adding more beer and sandwiches than they maybe should have been adding. Um, but there's a lot of practical street uh, smarts that you learn on the job, especially in the, crim- in, the, in, the, in the crime beat universe. And that that's fascinating with that, you know, expectation meets reality and people have to adjust along the way. Uh, I do talk a little bit about in my book about how that acculturation occurs. And it would take several years and it still does arguably in any kind of media work to get from college graduate to grizzled veteran. But, you know, you could also know enough within six months to probably be OK. But the learning curve is very steep and it wasn't for everybody. Some people would go join a newspaper and realize, you know, I don't want to do this. And there's so many articles in SPJ's Quill about how to write for magazines and how to become a novelist. Because I think a lot of reporters were like, oh, man, this is a lot harder than I expected. And I don't want to do this forever. And so copy editing becomes an attractive option because it's more normative. The rules are more clear. It's not as gray and, and, and intense as reporting is. Um, but over time, you have a more standardized ethical approach to the job. And I would say it becomes less sketchy to be a journalist, you know, by the mid-century. At first, it was very DIY and very much more like reporting for social media outlets uh, like TMZ at the beginning of the century. But by the middle of the century, it's a more respectable occupation. You would be less ashamed to tell your parents you were interested in, in joining. Even today, though, I would say people are still a bit horrified when their sons or daughters decide they want to become journalists. journalist. I have to reassure yeah. many parents that it's going to be okay. They're probably going to have gainful employment. And they're probably going to have a lot of fun. And you'll be proud of them. But don't worry about them in the meantime so much. <laughs> yeah, cosine. I, uh, I yeah. that you're that is definitely at least was was my experience. Yeah. Anyway, um, my parents used to say you know, they they would ask me when I was going to move up in the world and and, and move from a newspaper <laughs> to TV news. <laughs> oh yes, other conversation we can have. Oh man. Um, yeah, that's a whole other book. <laughs> so you know, thinking about uh, you, you you mentioned uh, reporters there. I know you bring up the the notion of of, of a cub reporter, and that's something that's sort of still yeah. in the the lexicon to some extent, though though maybe not quite as much today. But you know, is this is this the time period where we start to see like the 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 notion of, of beats develop and people sort of developing specialized expertise in in particular areas of coverage? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It leads to the. Uh, What's what's the good way of what's good way of putting this? the specialization? I think is is the, is the right word. I think you were hinting at that with your question. It's a good question again. Um, so you have aviation beats and you have 
school beats and university beats, and you have all kinds of beats that emerge out of the 1920s and 30s newsrooms that are getting more and more complicated and, and, and complex. Uh, and over time, you also have even subbeats. So you have politics, but you have state politics, then you have city politics, and you have multiple uh, overlapping roles, sometimes for one person, sometimes for a whole team of people. Um, but then you have correspondence, and you have people getting, being sent off far away, and that becomes a thing. It wasn't common before the middle of the 20th century to have so many different specialized beats and even have a photographer that was your own person. Many reporters were encouraged to take their own pictures and to steal pictures before that. Uh, and if they were paid at all, was paid, they were paid by space, so how much they actually got published. That changed with a lot of new funding and new capital investment and really healthy profit margins that came from advertising. So you had all these different roles on your on your large football team versus maybe your individual tennis squad. Um, and so it's just really funny seeing the the self realization that they can actually do more with the people that they have. They they always were they're always worried about other technologies coming and stealing their their talent. But uh, looking back, they they had a pretty good set, setup for a while there with the number and kinds of people that they could they can employ these big newspapers. Right, and, th- and that also led, I think, to the either creation or expansion of like the physical space that these oh, yeah. folks worked in. I know you you cite um, Nikki Usher's work. Mm-hmm. She thinks a lot about you know the, the notion of a place in, in journalism. And so, how how did you think about that question? And you know, sort of the you know, at least the the newsrooms I, I I worked in, they've been you know within walking distance of city hall and the and the mm-hmm. police station and sort of the other power structures mm-hmm. within the the uh, community was was that pretty common uh, yeah. in you know the the places you looked at definitely put it in your centers of power you know downtowns uh during the suburb move in the mid-century some of them go out to the suburbs and you know are still there uh, as a cost saving measure uh, but many newsrooms were located near places of power and aurora wallace talks about this in her book the architecture uh, of, of the buildings themselves being kind of messaging uh for especially in new york city and, and I, I argue chicago i mean if anyone's ever never been to the mccormick building for the chicago tribune it's just insane there's like pieces of the true cross in there and like a chunk of the berlin wall supposedly so there's all kinds of like statements in the in these buildings and if if you see them, you know, you're reminded of like solidness and authority, you know, it's sort of like visiting Google's headquarters in Kirkland, Washington, which is just a small offshoot of the major big Google down in Mountain View. I went there and visited my friend Gary, who works there. It was just overpowering, like, OK, you guys, you know, you, you know, you're the, the, the shit. So you, you have all these architectural indications of that. And so the same thing happened with newspaper buildings, although at the Seattle Times, where I was an intern, there are limitations. And so I, I asked someone about why it was so short, the building, because it looked like it was the foundation of a grand skyscraper, big Art Deco building. And uh, she said, actually, it was supposed to be a 30-story skyscraper, but they ran out of money because the Great Depression happened. Um, so we had this really beautiful first two stories with these gargoyles and other awesome ornamentations that you know would have rivaled you know the uh, the finest examples in New York City, like the Empire State Building, but it just wasn't finished. So there's all kinds of limitations too on these dreams for these owners and publishers. But some of them really have become quite grand palaces of data processing, I would call them, like the LA Times, or again, the Tribune in Chicago. And of course, uh, in New York, uh, all those wonderful newspapers that were there at that time. 
Mm-hmm. And and I think also by the end of, of this period, is it fair to say that we sort of reach the the physical layout that we can conjure from you know the movie, all the president's men, or so, even something like oh, yeah. Spotlight, or sort of the 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 pop culture uh, images that that people can conjure of of what newsrooms look like. Yeah, especially for big metro papers, you have that large undulating open room uh, that would have freaked out most other newsroom observers. People would come from Great Britain. And they would be like, where are your offices? And they, they would point to the main office, uh, which is their newsroom open floor plan. They would go, this is where we work. And this would just be so disturbing to our British friends because they had their own individual offices and still do. Uh, although big papers there now have open uh, layouts. That was really an attempt to save money, of course, and cram as many people into one space as possible. But also, you know, it also encouraged collaboration, theoretically. They're very distracting spaces to work in, as you probably Remember, and I, I could barely think in the ones I worked in, but now they're quieter, um, I think, in general. Um, and even my noisy experience probably paled to the oral experience, oral experience, the sound experience, uh, being one of these places with typewriters and teletypes and other loud noise-making devices. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the, the the last chapters in your book, speaking of of, of devices and those things, I mean, you, you, you spent oh, yeah. a whole chapter talking about the evolution of, of technology. And I mean, how I know there's no, you know, perhaps one completely generalized answer, but were these places generally receptive to new forms of technology? Or were they like, no, we don't know <laughs> about this? Or, you know, how did, how did they react as, as new yeah. new things came down the pike? I think today we think of journalists being afraid of technology. That's probably because of the economic impact they've had. And in my latest book coming out next year about the internet and newsrooms, there's a long history of that anxiety. Um, But uh, historically, most journalists have been pretty big fans of new technology tools. And the telephone really helped their work. The car really helped their work. Uh, The radio and TV, these were rivals to their work, but, you know, were also ways of doing journalism. Uh, Generally speaking, most news workers were in favor of innovation with the news and with ways of getting it. Um, I try to create that same spirit in my, in my chapter. Um, but you know, there's always an undercurrent of anxiety if they weren't given time to learn the tools or their jobs were on the line, if they didn't learn them fast enough. I think that's fair to keep in mind too, but I really became enamored with radio cars in particular as ways to do mobile journalism before we have backpack journalism and, and, and the kinds of journalism out in the field that we, we are no, we're, we're known for and expect to see uh, in, in the field today. We, there's a big sort of, I don't want to call it, call it a trend, but there certainly are people who are moving out of news organizations and oh, doing yeah. their own thing mm-hmm. on, on Substack and all, all, all the rest of that. Oh, yeah. um, how, how did, did reporters see themselves during this time? Was there this sort of like, how self-interested or was there this this notion that, you know, I, I am a reporter and I, I have an audience or people are, are reading the paper specifically for my stories versus the kind of yeah. collective enterprise of what the organization is producing? The star reporters who I identify as a kind of class reporter definitely thought that these were the byline reporters who got paid the big bucks and they would be moving around from team to team. And they thought of themselves, you know, as professional writers and, you know, many would go on to write novels and memoirs, uh, become their own columnists, you know, become war correspondents. You know, we might think of them as people who start their own, yeah, their own substacks. I'm thinking of Heather Cox Richardson and other people. And she is, you know, interesting as a, as a kind of outsider who became a journalist by, by writing these essays, which are so great and so timely for our moment in history. Um, but there, there were also lots of reporters who were unknown and I really am fascinated by their stories. Um, and in a number of 
the accounts I read, you know, they thought of themselves as being parts of teams, you know, and, and parts of groups and not so much lone wolves. And so there's a really fascinating tribal element to the newsroom and life in the newsroom and to be apart from your friends, you know, because these were really close friends sometimes, you know, was unfathomable. So they, they couldn't imagine doing journalism on their own. So there was both a category of people who were totally fine with that and they made lots of money, you know, the equivalent of probably a quarter million dollars a year, you know, our, in our money today. And there are people who made much more uh, modest existences, you know, who made the equivalent of maybe thirty to forty thousand dollars a year in our, our money. That was considered very good, you know, if you weren't weren't a famous reporter or a byline reporter, you know, who had a, a lot of a lot of fans outside of your own newspaper. You know, these people are what I would call more typical reporters, and they were more usually team oriented. And so I think it would be hard for them to think outside of that newsroom space in the sense that they would want to do journalism away from that space. Uh, many of them reported feeling lonely, you know, and, and separated from their friends when they were given long duration assignments or given the award, you know, of going off to the Capitol uh, in their state or going to Washington, D.C. or being sent overseas. Many of them were were wistful and missed missed their friends back in the newsroom. So it was very much a people-oriented job. You went into it because you liked other humans most of the time. I think a lot of them were closet introverts uh, as well, and they would hide from other individuals in the newsroom too when they had a chance. Yeah. Well, and that, that's certainly still the case today, I oh, yeah. think. I understand how that feels. Yeah. Um, so was there, uh, um, I do want to ask you about what you have, uh, coming up next. You mentioned oh, sure. several, several other projects here, but was there anything else you wanted to, to say about this book yeah. before we move on to what's next? I, I hope people read it and find it helpful for their projects. I, I wanted to write the book that I, I couldn't find when I was working on my research and I wanted to be a resource for other people there. There is, you know, I think, uh, a place for a book that tries to be a foundation for other projects. So I really hope people can cite my book and find it inspirational. There's so much more that can be done about women and people of color and about technology and about unionization and about uh, transitions. And so please use my book and use it for your own work is my, is my, is my encouragement of my, my peers and to my betters. Cause there's a lot of people who are smarter than me working on similar challenges for sure. Yeah. And so uh, tell us what, what you have coming up next. It sounds like there are maybe several more books in the works. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I maybe write too many of these things, and I probably should slow down. Uh, I have two books, one of Rutledge that came out in 2019 about the history of the computer in the newsroom. And it's called A Short History of Disruptive Journals and Technologies. It's kind of a open-ended title for a very particular project looking at the use of early, uh, uh, not just desktop computers before that, mini computers, and before that, mainframe computers in the newsroom from the 60s through the early 90s. And then my other book that's coming out next year, hopefully, as long as my editor likes what I, I'm, I'm giving giving him and my production manager likes what she sees. Um, with also, also with Rutledge for the same series, the Disruption series, that one is uh, a much more narrowly titled, which is probably good because it reflects the actual subject matter better. Uh, a, a, uh, see, I w- it was going to be called A History of the Internet and Newsrooms, but now it's called uh, the internet and newsrooms. No, it's called, oh my goodness. I should know what this is. It's been a couple changes, but it's called, um, see the arrival of the internet and, uh, the newsroom. I think that's what we're working on right now is the title. Anyway, there'll be, there'll be more about that. If you Google my name and Google Rutledge, that'll, it'll come up. Um, and that, that was a, a sequel project. And so was the other one to the American newsroom book, which took a long time to make. It, it was a project that lasted from 20, really 2012 through 2016, and then revised from 2016 through 2019. 
And uh, the press was very kind. Andrew Davidson was very kind to work with me after Gary Cast had to retire. Um, and it was just a long, a long journey. So my, my other admonishment for would-be authors is just to keep working on it. I'm not a smart person. I'm just a stubborn person. So my, my wife is the genius. She has a book coming out of Oxford University Press. And so her book is, is going to be phenomenal. But I have always found it, it's a struggle to, to get things done and then to get them promoted. I'm, I'm so bad at promotion. That's why I was so excited that you reached out. And uh, so was Robin Renison at the press. Um, and so I'm trying, I'm trying to be, to be uh, more open-minded about how to move from one thing to another, not so monomaniacal, if that makes any sense. Yeah. What's your, what's your wife's book going to be about? Her book's about journalism in East Africa and journalism in a authoritarian uh, context. So it's, it's much more contemporary and I think has a lot to say toward what's happening in the world at the moment. Um, I, and I do want to work on a book with her at some point because I have a lot to learn from her because she's so smart with how she engages with ethnography and she goes to newsrooms and, and spends time with journalists in their context, which is so important, I think. Well, we will look for all of those books coming out. Yeah. And maybe we can have you guys back on together. Do yeah. <laughs> a joint interview or something along those lines. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But, but for now, uh, we will just remind listeners that uh, your book is The American Newsroom, A History, 1920 to 1960. And it is available now from the University of Missouri Press or wherever you get your books. Uh, will, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And I really appreciated you making the time for me.